Well, I hope you guys are uh, not too tired after losing an hour of sleep. Some of you probably like, um, nope, slept fine. Um, but isn't it nice to have the extra daylight? Even now, there's still maybe a little bit of light out there. It's kind of nice. Although compared to like you're getting the youth group and it's dark, you know, in the wintertime, it's like, wow. Well, hey, um, let me read the passage for us. I'll pray, and then we'll just we'll jump straight into it tonight. No need for announcements or anything. Um, I'm going to read all of chapter 28, if that's okay. So Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God, that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, Jacob's and Esau's mother. <clears throat> Okay, I was like, what just happened? I flipped over two pages. I'm like, what? I am. Okay, sorry. Apologize. Verse 6, chapter 28. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from, the, from there, and that he blessed him, he directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife, took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Bethal, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebeoth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. 
And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all of that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we pray, Father, that you'd help us to see how in this passage of Scripture you are calling us to a relationship with you. Lord, let us always be in awe and in fear of you as we consider that you, your love for us, Lord, is unconditional. Um, so God, be glorified in these words, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I live in a, in a pretty cookie-cutter home-ish neighborhood where all the houses look alike, and there's like 140 houses in our neighborhood. And so I say that because it makes perfect location for door-to-door salesmen. And they just like, they just come to the, there's always someone once a week, it seems like, right? And so people get wise and they put the no solicitor stickers and it's always funny, the people who still knock, right? Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. Or I didn't know what that meant. And I don't know, but people selling vacuums, people selling religion, people selling, um, you know, do you have ants? Maybe, I don't, I'm sure. I guess we have some every once in a while. Well, hey, buy this program. Well, you only pay $120 for two treatments of a few black ants in the summertime? Well, here's the problem. If you don't take care of the problem, it's gonna get worse. And then what's gonna happen, they're gonna come up your sink. And then you know what's gonna happen? They're gonna be in your bed. And you have kids, and so what's gonna happen? You're gonna wake up and your kids are gonna have ants in their face in the middle of the night. Shut the door, right? You gotta admire the guy for trying to at least tell me why I need to spend this money, right? And isn't that the job of all salespeople? To convince you of why you need this? Um, marketing is a really interesting thing to me. Marketing, really its job and its goal is to make you feel that if I do not have this pro- uh, product, I won't be happy. And so when it comes to phones or, or different types of food and and cars, really, if you have this product, then you'll be part of the, you know, the happy and successful. And it's interesting how often marketing now employs sex, right? It just, sex sells, right? And when we look at the world and how it always tries to get us to need something, there is a sense in which that that's kind of true when it comes to faith. That the Lord, God, the gospel will never have any relevance to your life if you don't see the need for it. Not that I, in a sense, view myself as a salesman, but there is a real sense in which I desperately want, through the Holy Spirit, by his word, to show you your need, your desperate need for Christ. Which is why, as Christians, it is not our aim to bring up sin so that I make you feel like you're a dirty little sinner and you just feel like you're very bad and you kind of shame yourself. And, and sometimes Christians, unfortunately, get that impression from preacher hyperbole, from, from Christians kind of misspeaking that, that there is nothing you could ever do that will please God and you're the worst and you're a filthy, rotten sinner. And I, and I kind of come back to how I would say there's things that are true but the way we say them make them intolerable. As Christians, we don't want to talk about sin to the fact that I just make you feel like you're worthless and dirty. I want to arouse your spiritual need for Christ. 
And there is a difference in that. And so by us talking about sin every single week, by us bringing up the beauty of God's law and how, how quickly we are prone to wander from that law, like we just sang, how quickly we are to see God's law as, as tight and ugly and outdated, hopefully all shows us how much we actually need Jesus. But how do we get this need? And this, I think this passage is helpful for us answering that question. How do we get to a place where we actually look at God and we say, God, I want you. God, I need you. We left off last week looking at a very dysfunctional family. We saw favoritism between the parents. Um, Isaac loved Esau. But do you remember why he loved Esau? Anyone remember that? Why did Isaac, what's that? Firstborn, yes, but also because he was really good at something. Hunting. Hunting, right? Imagine if your parents say, like, hey, I really love you because you're great at baseball. If you hear that a lot as a kid, what are you going to try to do? Be really good at baseball. Or if your mom says, I, I, I love you because you are just so smart and you get straight A's. I love that. What happens if you don't get straight A's? Right? So we see this dysfunctional family. We see Isaac loving one son more than another. And he really only loves this son because he's good at giving him good food. Right? And we see the mom loving this other son. And so we have this, uh, these two brothers. And one brother, just his whole life has been a, a, a life of trickery of deceiving people, of scheming and getting his way. Jacob, literally the word means deceiver. And then we have Esau, who just doesn't even care. He takes on foreign wives who don't worship God. He lives a life, loosely confesses God in his lips, but does not live after the Lord. And last week we talked about how this whole kind of uh, plan happened where Jacob dressed up as his brother. It's like almost like... Um, What's like a little red, little red Riding Hood goes to Grandma's house, right? Right? It's like, you don't sound like... Anyways, you know what I'm saying, right? You know, Isaac is dying. And he's like, you don't sound like Esau. You sound like Jacob, but you're hairy, right? And, like, like, and Jacob, anyways, he steals this blessing. And, and here is the ramifications of this plan. Um... Rebecca says, hey, Jacob, I love you. I'm glad you got the blessing. But I think your brother is going to kill you. So just for a few days, why don't you go to my brother's house? It's only 500 miles away. Right? Just hang out there for a little bit until tensions kind of cool down. And then you come back. Now, the only problem is, is a couple days turned into 20 years. Okay? So what happens is... Because of this dysfunctional family, because Jacob stole, he's actually having to flee for his life from his brother. And we kind of get this picture, right? I'm really going to focus tonight on verses 10 and following. But we get this picture that right before Jacob flees, Isaac says, hey, make sure that you do not take a Canaanite wife. Don't take a Canaanite wife. But did you catch what happened a little bit there? I'm sorry, I kind of read it pretty... um, I didn't read it that well, but um, if you look at verse 6, 
Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to take a wife from there, and that he blessed him, and he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Now here's the thing. Esau had done that. And you want to know that the crazy thing is, Esau was never once told by his parents that he shouldn't do this. And so, because Esau wants to please his dad so much, what does he do? He goes to Ishmael and takes another wife. It, it really, here's the picture. Isaac and Rebekah are neglectful of really teaching their kids of what does it mean to fear the Lord. But we have this, at this point in time, I'm thinking that um, Jacob and Esau are probably in their 70s. Okay? I, I know we kind of read these stories and we think they're young, handsome men. They're older. And you know what we see? We, we see a 75-year-old man who still is desperately trying to know his father and please him. And he didn't even know that he, by taking on Canaanite wives, that he displeased his father. And so I think there's a small principle here that we cannot be neglectful about teaching people about what does it mean to follow God. Isaac was passive. He did not care about his sons, Jacob or Esau. And look, do you want to know the crazy thing is? We talked about this last week. God still used them. God still used them. So Jacob has to flee. He goes to this guy Laban, and we're going to talk about this, and, and, and he's going to get a taste of his medicine because Jacob means what again? Yeah, to deceive. And he's actually going to come to an encounter with someone who even deceives him, right? You think Jacob's the worst. He's going to meet his uncle, who's going to be like the worst worst, right? But here's the thing. Just, just put the context together with me for a second. Jacob, his whole life, has been someone who's kind of gotten his way. He uh, convinces his brother to sell his birthright for a cup of what? Lentil, Lentil stew, right? Later than that, he tricks him and his mom. They have this plan where he gets the blessing, right? He's probably been like this his whole life. Even Esau says, man, this dude's being true to his name. He's probably used to his brother his whole life, tricking him, deceiving people. But what has this left Jacob in? Look at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones, the place he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. I think he's lonely. For the first time in his life, he has to come to grips with what his decisions have led him to. That he's fleeing. He's leaving the home and his family. He's sitting outside in the stars with a rock as a pillow. And I think he has a real low-bottom moment. It's funny to me how much God can use things like loneliness, anxiety, stress, hardships, to be the defining moments in our life where we finally get to the point where we cry out to God and say, I need you. Really, the, the first thing I want to say tonight is that God finds us in a place of need. God finds us when we have come to wit's end, when the way we have been doing life is no longer working, and we find ourselves at a crossroads. 
You know, something that's really interesting about my ministry to all of you is I recognize that a lot of you have heard a lot of sermons in your life. I want to say all of you, but I, I know a good majority of you come from Christian homes where you have Christian parents. And, and here's what I want to say. I can talk till I'm blue in the face. I can tell you sermon after sermon. I can, com- I can plead with you. I can pray for you. But ultimately, you will not take Jesus seriously in your life until you feel that need for him. And sometimes it's really easy to know a lot about God. It's really easy to hold on to little verses that we kind of memorize as kids. But deep down in our hearts, we are kind of like Jacob and Esau. We know a lot of good theology. We maybe profess Christ with our mouth. But we really haven't made him our personal savior yet. And this is exactly what happens to Jacob in this passage. After this dream that he has, he comes to the conclusion, man, he's not just the God of Abraham and Isaac, he's also now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's my God too. And the challenge of growing up in the church, the challenge of hearing the Bible taught over and over again, the challenge of being a young person who lives in America is that we hardly get to those rock-bottom moments. There's, I think there's a real correlation between those who are wealthy and not knowing Jesus. Those who have a lot of opportunities. Doesn't even Jesus talk about this, right? It is hard for the rich into the kingdom of heaven. Matter of fact, it's as hard as trying to stick a camel through the eye of a needle. They probably would have laughed at Jesus saying that. If the rich can't make it, who can, right? Like, are you kidding me? Because here's the thing, guys. When you look at Jesus and you kind of just think, man, I, yeah, I think Jesus is cool. I know he loves me. Probably, he probably is trying to teach me how to live a better life. If, if we simply view Jesus as someone who's just trying to give us a moral instruction on how to live life, we'll never deeply in our hearts come to a crossroads where we say, no, I need Christ. I'm a pastor, which means that my life sometimes is a fishbowl. The people look at me a little different than other people. I was uh, golfing yesterday, met a few random guys, and, and you know, of course, the conversation always comes up. So what do you do for a living, right? Uh, to tell them about what I do, and, 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 and probably for another two hours, this one guy just kept making sacrilegious jokes. Um, I think someone had a really bad shot. The guy was like, well, he's a priest. He can absolve you from your sins. <laughs> okay. Um, and, you know, I, I, I say that because, you know, sometimes, guys, listen, sometimes people have a lot of views about what does it mean to be a Christian. They have a lot of views about religion. But here, in essence, really is the first part of what does it mean to be a Christian that you recognize your need for Christ. Even though I'm a pastor and I look like I have all my things put together and people can make fun of me like, of course, here's the first thing I will always tell you. I need Jesus. Probably more on the days where I have it together than on the days where I don't have it together. 
So, you know, when life is going well and actually feel like I know what I'm saying and actually feel like, man, life is good and it's all coming together, I need, I desperately need Jesus just as much on that day as I do on my worst day of sinning. That, that is the, the absolute best thing you can have in your life. That I need Jesus just as much on my best days as my worst days. Without that desire and that need for Christ, his grace to us will always seem stale and stagnant. And so that's the first thing I want to say, that, that, that the first step of having a relationship with God is that he finds us in a place of need. Finds us in a place of need. Um, we call these like faith-defining moments, right? And I'm not saying it's impossible, but one of the reasons why we talk about sin is to maybe help you see why you need Christ. But the second thing that happens in this passage that's really unique, and, and what does it say about a relationship with God, is that God establishes his grace to us. God reveals his grace to us. So Jacob's having this dream, verse 12, and behold, there is a ladder set up on the earth, right? So imagine you're having this dream, you see the earth, it's blue. I don't know what he pictured because I don't think he had a globe, right? But... <laughs> Maybe God gave him a supernatural vision of the earth, right? I don't think someone back in ancient years culture quite understood that, or all the continents and all that stuff. But there's a ladder set up on the earth, and what was happening on this ladder is there was angels ascending to heaven and descending back down, right? This is like a classic children's church story, right? And verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above this ladder and said, I am the Lord. The God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. I, I have this sense that God even said that right there because Jacob is probably saying, you know what? That old life, it's done. I made a mess of that. My brother wants to kill me. He's stronger than me. Uh, peace. You know, you mean, I'm at wit's end. Coming to the, to, the, to the end of yourself, he's just kind of like, shh. And God says, hey, Jacob. The land that you're on. I made a promise. Verse 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here it is, verse 15. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you, until what I have done until I have done what I have promised you. See, what is so crazy about this story is that God gives this promise to Jacob when he was the least deserving of it. You know, we, we some people want to play games I hear a little bit. They want to say Jacob was a little better than Esau, but I'll make the, the case that God did not choose Jacob because he was better or because Esau did something much worse. They were both pretty, eh. None of them before this moment, Jacob did not have a true, living, vibrant faith. He may have professed God with his mouth, but he is nowhere the kind of guy we see at the end of the book of Genesis. And it takes God initiating his grace. God says, hey, Jacob, you've done nothing to deserve this. You deserve nothing of these promises, but, but here's my promise. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to establish you. And I'm going to fulfill this promise that I've given to you. 
is God giving his grace despite his performance, which is the gospel, which is the very heart of what does it mean to be a Christian. That when I recognize my need for Jesus, here's what God says to us. I'm going to love you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to give you a new home. You're your adopted son and daughter. I'm going to give you an inheritance that is far greater than anything this world can give you for free. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's yours. It's yours. You see, the same God, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, has always been the same that he relates to us out of grace. He relates to us out of grace. Guys, the reason why grace is so beautiful, the reason why we want to talk about grace again and again and again is because when we behold the glory of God's grace to us, is when we can, we can actually begin to love him. You see, guys, without God's grace, do you know how we should act before God? Terrified in fear that God at any moment will judge us for our sin. But because of his grace, he establishes a, a unconditional covenant with us. And no matter what we do, good or bad, God, the creator of the universe, the God who made all things with the power of his word says, there's not one thing in this life that you can do where I won't have your back in. Grace is the most powerful message we have that if you sinned from A to Z today in Christ it is all forgiven that if you struggle with addiction if you struggle with going to that same sin over and over and over and over again God in his grace says I love you for you I forgive you Jacob doesn't deserve this grace. But he has it. But he has it. And so this leads us to our third point, to the third thing of this passage. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. So here's the thing. God finds us in a place of need. And he saves us by his grace. And here's the third thing. We respond to this grace. We respond to this grace. Now let me tell you something here. Um, it is not even the response we give to grace that saves us. The response we give when, when, when we find that God finds us and he puts that need in our hearts where we want Jesus and he says, oh, my grace is sufficient for you. And we respond to that. It, it is our love for God. It is our thanksgiving for God. It, it is the fact that we have been given such a great gift and all we want to do is say thanks. Because here's the thing. Our response to God's grace typically is a little short-sighted. Typically, our response to God's grace isn't near the type of response that it merits. Because look at what Jacob says here. It, just by the way, I want you to know how small words make a really big difference. Look what he says, okay? This dude, this dude, 
the lying deceiver who deserves nothing, who gets the grace, who gets the covenant, all the blessing. Here's what he says. Verse 20. This makes me laugh so hard. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if. Okay, think about that. That's saying, okay, conditionally speaking, God, if you will be with me, and if you will keep me in the way that I go, and God, if you give me bread to eat, and God, if you give me clothing to wear, so that I can come again to my father's house in peace, then you'll be my God. Dude, really? God's saying, hey, Jacob, guess what? I got you, man. Even though you don't deserve it, the covenant, it's coming to you. I'm making this promise. I will be with you. I'm going to bring you back to this land. Jacob's like, man, I never really had eyes to see it, but, but God is here. Look what he says in verse 16. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I did not have eyes to see. I did not have the heart to need it, but God found me. I think Jacob's like, you know what? This God, he is my God. Matter of fact, God, here's the thing. I'll tell you what, God. If you give me all the things I really want, if you, if you establish me, if you give me good things, you're going to be my God. God is promising unconditional love and promises to him. But what does Jacob do? I'll give you conditional promises. Pretty short-sighted there, right? You see, the merit of our praise, the, 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 the merit of what happens after God's grace in our lives should be everything I have is yours. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. You see, guys, the story of the Bible is not a story of those who try really hard, of those who are self-sufficient, of those who are really spiritual. It's a story how God takes ordinary, broken, and flawed people and he calls them to himself by their grace. And living in response to that grace, they become people who by God's grace are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, where they become more and more like how God created him to be. You see, here is the coolest thing about this passage. This grace to God, this grace to us that God gives, is really found in one person. So let's keep this imagery of the ladder alive and turn with me to John chapter 1. All the way in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible, a really neat story happens. Jesus is calling his disciples. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? So in essence, his reservation here, Governor Francis says, hey, dude, we found the guy. 
Like, you know all those prophecies about in, the, in Scripture? We found them. And what does he say? Dude, he's from Nazareth. Everyone knows that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Right? So he's kind of given this objection. He's kind of like, um, that's kind of a good question. So Philip said to him, verse 46, Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so here's what Nathanael says. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And here it is, verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, the disciples there are rightfully concerned about the location of God's blessing. But what Jesus is actually saying here he says, do you know that ladder that you were thinking about, Nathaniel, earlier, under the fig tree? I'm that ladder. You see, God, in giving his grace, this ladder of angels ascending and descending upon the earth, God giving that grace ultimately is fulfilled in the one person who can mediate between humanity and God. Jesus is the ladder that leads us up to knowing who God is. Jesus is the person in whom there is grace and there is mercy and there is forgiveness. In Jesus, there is truth. Because here's what we're going to see about Jacob's life the rest of the next couple of weeks. That even though God has established a covenant to him, even though God has, has given him extreme grace, and even though Jacob has responded a little poorly, God is going to let him suffer the ramifications of his sin. He's going to meet someone who's going to out-deceive him. He's going to have to work. He's going to have to be under threats, right? He's going to have dysfunction in his own family, right? And so here's the thing, guys. Listen. In Christ, there is great mercy. He is the latter. He is the one who reconciles us to God. In Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. But here's the thing. Jesus, he's going to lead us into truth. He's going to help unravel all the false ways we've been living our lives. And sometimes it's going to be hard and painful. Sometimes Jesus is going to let us kind of know that the way we've been thinking, the way we've been doing life, yeah, that comes with some hard consequences sometimes. But here's the best news of all. That in Christ, we can know God. That in Christ, here's the best thing, we are tied into this blessing that was once given to Abraham simply by believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus and what he's done in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would help these students come to a point in their life where they need you. Lord, we all need you. But Father, sometimes we're so busy and distracted with the things at school, relationships, problems. Good Lord, that we forget that our greatest need is for you. More than more than water or bread, Lord, we need you. And so put that desire in our hearts. Help us to know that in you, God, there is much grace. And Father, I pray that we respond to your grace by living a life of praise and obedience and trust. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.